Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. We engage in the study of the Hebrew Bible in its ancient Near Eastern context and original languages to promote good and reasonable interpretation of Scripture so that the church might live more faithfully in the present. Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. I'm Matthew Delaney. I'm here with Dr. Nathan French. And today we have what I think is going to be one of our most fun episodes that we've ever done. And I don't mean this in a hyperbolic sense whatsoever, because we're going to end up in Genesis 6 with the famous passage about these Nephilim or giants, sons of God, mighty heroes of old. We're going to be traveling through a number of passages in the Hebrew Bible to track down this idea of the sons of God. And our journey is going to take us all the way to Mesopotamia as well in the ancient Near East to see what's going on. What is the, what is the literature of the whole ancient Near East have to say about mysterious divine beings doing some fascinating things? And this isn't just going to be fun, though. I think our conversation is going to lead us to the very heartbeat and plot of the Hebrew Bible. So without further ado, let's just dive right in to our conversation today. Yeah, let's do it. So our journey is going to start out with us in Deuteronomy chapter 32. We actually did an episode on this chapter, super important. Mm-hmm. But of course, we, we did not get to cover everything in this chapter, including what we're going to focus on today. There's a really interesting verse here that we want to talk about in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And the big question is, is a verse in this chapter talking about the sons of Israel or the sons of God. Yeah. And there's really interesting difference depending on which we go with. So really briefly, Jeremiah chapter 32 is a song that God teaches Moses that is going to be a witness against Israel when they will inevitably uh, betray and abandon him yet again. And this chapter goes through basically the story of how God chose Israel to be his own. But even more than that, this chapter also talks a little bit about the rest of the world. And we get uh, a little scene in here about how the nations were divided. This alludes back to Genesis chapter 10. And it's going to be really interesting. There's a key difference in how the nations are divided, depending on what manuscript you look at. In case you're not familiar with textual criticism, it's important to note that if you're reading a Bible in whatever your native language is, that is a translation based on other manuscripts. And there's not just one manuscript that's important for understanding the Hebrew yeah. Bible. We have what are called the Masoretic texts. We like the Codex Sassoon that was famously sold for millions of dollars recently. <laughs> the Leningrad Codex, the Aleppo Codex. And so these are manuscripts from around the year 1000 of the Common Era that we have to look at. But we also have uh, Septuagint codices. Uh, these manuscripts are from around the 4th, 5th, 6th century. And these are Greek texts, they're translations. Uh, and then we also have, of course, the famous Dead Sea Scrolls. Although fragmentary, we still have quite a few portions that we can reference. And these date to around the turn of the Common Era, a couple centuries before, a century after. And all of these are important witnesses. And this is a great example of how textual criticism is important for trying to understand a text. So when we look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, what we have here is when the Most High uh, divided the, the uh, when he divided the nations. So this is when he's 
caused people to inherit, when he, when he caused the nations to inherit uh, their lands and he divided humanity, he established their board, the borders of the peoples according to the number of something. So again, if you're imagining Genesis chapters 10 and 11, we have all these nations that are being split and they're going to their own locations and places. And, but what number of nations and why? If you read the Masoretic text, and here we have the Leningrad Codex pulled up, for example, it's according to the number of B'nai Israel. B'nai Israel, B'nai being sons of, and Israel, of course, being Israel. So it's saying the number of nations that we're splitting up, it's according to that. Now, interestingly, Septuagint says it's according to a very different number. We have mm-hmm. an, Angelon Theu, Angelon Theu, which this is according to the number of the angels of God. Angels of God. So the, there are divine beings of God, and that's what the number is, is um, referring to. So how do we reconcile these differences? For a while, there was, a, there was, of course, a debate happening between Septuagint and the Masoretic text. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls were recovered. And it just so happens that we actually, has a, that we actually have a fragment from uh, this section in Hebrew. And what does it say? According to the number of, you'll see, uh, and if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see that the previous parts in brackets, you can see what parts we have in Hebrew. Um, but we have enough of this in Hebrew that we know where it's coming from. They will autofill uh, what's in brackets here just to make this tool easier to use where you know where it's coming from. But you'll notice that the beginning of this verse is not in brackets, and this part is also not. So we have an idea. We know what where this verse is coming from. Um, so even though the, the word phrase according to the number of is in brackets, we know what we're talking about. According to the number of what? Here it is. B'nai Elohim. It is. According to the, the, the sons of God. And so now we have both Septuagint and Dead Sea Scrolls are both referring to divine beings. Slightly different phraseology, but mm-hmm. referring to divine beings. So I'm about to turn this over to Dr. French here, but basically we're going to explore. So if if we follow with Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls, that God divided the nations according to the number of divine beings, what is this talking about? Who are these divine beings? Yes. Now, <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting with the manuscripts, too. It was, it was excellent. It was a nice uh, uh summary and overview of the textual traditions thought that was probably very helpful for our listeners here it's interesting to see in the septuagint angelon theu when we have bnei elohim in the dead sea scrolls you might think of something like melachim right you might think of the actual word that we would have for messengers in hebrew but we don't have that so we have a very interesting tradition between the manuscripts here, and I find it, uh, it's, it's just such a fascinating uh, development within ancient Israelite texts on this particular verse because it is so significant. So now we got to ask, Monty, don't we? Yeah. And, well, before we do, I guess one, one last thing, and maybe you can help explain this. You did, you did well on the dating of all the, all the manuscripts, but between what we have here in the Masoretic text and what we have with the Dead Sea Scrolls, how many years are we talking with the actual manuscripts that we have? I mean, what sort of dating oh. difference are we talking about? Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. So, yeah, once you actually compare them, Dead Sea Scrolls is about a thousand years yeah. earlier yeah. than the Masoretic text that we have. Yeah. Uh, and then the Septuagint is kind of in between, again, around 
you know, that fourth, fifth, sixth century, yeah. depending on which, which manuscript you're looking at. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's a huge time gap difference yeah. between these. So it's very important. It's not to suggest though, that the Masoretic text by any means is not an earlier text or an early text in and of itself. I mean, it does just say that the manuscripts that we have, i.e., I guess what I'm saying is that the tradition itself, the writing tradition, yeah. does still go back a long ways, right? It doesn't doesn't yes. necessarily mean it's just the evidence that we have, the actual text that we have. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls go back a thousand years before that. So it's very important to see the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls much closer in time. So now we've got to ask the question, let's go with the Dead Sea Scrolls with the Hebrew, since this is Hebrew Bible Insights, first of all. Who yep. are these B'nai Elohim? Is there anything that we can talk about with the B'nai Elohim? And that has to take us to Genesis 6, 1 to 4, right? Yep. That Better believe it. That wonderful passage. So we have Genesis 6, 1 to 4. We've covered this in a previous episode. We're going to go much more in depth here, uh, especially with the ancient Near Eastern side. Um Again, having a, a brief context of Genesis 6 within the context of Genesis 1 through 11. So let's sort of discuss what's going on here with Genesis uh, 6. If you could think about it, Genesis 1 through 11 is really a precursor to what's going to come in the rest of Genesis, which is actually Genesis 12 to 50. So Genesis 12 to 50, very concerned. Uh, I mean, the main concern is uh, the seed of Abraham and Abraham's descendants. So Genesis 1 through 11 is a setup, it seems, to that, um, to that block of text, Genesis 12 to 50, that's going to come later. Uh, and we know also, though, that Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, is really at the heart of Genesis 1 through 11. Like the whole thing wants to get us to Genesis 11, where the Tower of Babel happens, really Genesis 10 and 11, we have the dividing of the nations and then the Tower of Babel. There's a reason why those two come together. And so that, I think, is an important preface. And right in the middle of that, we have this Genesis 6, uh, where we have a mention of the B'nai Elohim. So I'm going to turn it back over to you, Mati. Let's, let's go ahead and pick apart these verses here on a linguistic level, yeah? Yeah, let's do that. So Genesis 6... I know I'm sure there's some people who have heard of this passage, but maybe others haven't. And if you yeah. haven't, when you think of Genesis six, you might instantly go to flood and Noah, which obviously they are really important in this section yeah. of the story. But before that, we get when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters are born to them. We have the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And so this is where we have these sons of God. In Hebrew, literally, we have B'nai Ha-Elohim, sons of, uh, we have the, the definite article here, Ha. Um, not going to be a huge difference for the sake of our conversation today. But yeah. sons of God, basically, is what we have. And they just come out of nowhere. Okay, we have these <laughs> sons of God coming in and taking women as <laughs> wives. All right. Uh, man, we have so much to unpack, don't we? I know. I know. Uh, um. You know, then we have God, uh, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he has flesh. His day shall be 120 years. There's actually quite a bit of ambiguity and textual uncertainty in that verse three mm -hmm. right here that I just mm -hmm. read. Mm -hmm. And we're going to skip over that for today. So we're going to go to verse four now. And this is where we have a lot that we're very interested in today. Yeah. Depending on what translation you have, verse four will read very differently. I'm reading ESV, which says the Nephilim. Now, if that means nothing to you, it shouldn't because that's just transliterating Hebrew. It's not yeah. translating it. 
that's taking the actual sounds of the Hebrew language and replicating them in English. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Mm -hmm. So epic. So let's break down a couple important things in Hebrew here for the sake of our conversation today. We've already mentioned the B'nai Elohim, or here the B'nai Ha'Elohim, the sons of God, their main focus. Um, but now we're getting that different category. We have Hanifilim. So what is this? Um, there's a whole literature on, uh, academic literature on this discussion. You can go far back into really early Jewish commentators, like Rashi, for example, who call them, they're the fallen ones, yeah. saying, he says, they're the Nephilim, because they fell and caused the world to fall. Yeah. Why would they say that? Well, because the root of this word is nafal. And there's a really common verb in Hebrew, nafal, which means to fall. Um, so that was a prevailing thought for, um, for some interpreters over the years. But there is a challenge here, which is the specific Masoretic vowel pointing. If it was really the fallen ones, it would not be Hanifilim. It would be Hanoflim. Right. Um, because, because, again, when you take a Kal verb and you nominalize it, you make it into a noun, that's the vowel pattern that you expect. And that's what you see all throughout the Hebrew Bible. But instead, we have a different vowel pointing here. Nephilim. So it begs the question, what is this noun referring to? And it's extremely rare. This specific noun only appears three times in the whole Hebrew Bible. That's it. Here once and twice in the book of Numbers. And um, so we don't have a lot to go off of when it comes to the biblical Hebrew text. And when you compare it to the Greek Septuagint translation, they use the Greek word for giant. And Oh, so that's those, really oh, those Septuagint translators always throwing us a curveball, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> throwing us a curveball, right? <laughs> but it's actually, at first you might think, okay, well, where are they getting that from? But then you realize in Aramaic, as well as Mishnaic Hebrew, or you call it Middle Hebrew if you want, the Hebrew that's attested um, around the time of Jesus, a little bit after, uh, you have the word nafil, and nafil is an Aram, uh, there's an Aramaic word or nephilah, depending on whether more Hebrew or Aramaic version of it, it means giant. And we see this yeah. in Aramaic texts as well as Middle Hebrew texts. And that would make sense of the vowel pointing for this word. And it also makes sense why the early Greek translators were using the word giant. So long story short, giant is what makes the most sense for this category. Yeah. I'll add one last thought, and I know we're getting really into the weeds of language, but it's probably why you're listening to the podcast. You want the deep knowledge. <laughs> um, people will talk about the consonantal text of Hebrew because the the written the 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 intent the uh, comprehensive vowel system in terms of the written part of that yeah. was not done until the masteries came around about the sixth to the eleventh centuries, and Ancient Hebrew had a different way of trying to represent vowels through writing by taking a, a few of the consonants and having them do double work, sometimes being a consonant sound like H or sometimes representing an O sound like a vowel. 
And we do this in English, right? Like the word, uh, like yeah. the letter Y can sometimes be either a consonant, sometimes it's a vowel, you know? Exactly. Right. Yep, it could be Y or E. Right. So, okay, why does this matter? Because theoretically, what you could say is, hey, maybe the vowel pointings that the Masoretes put in, you know, maybe the vowels could have been something different um, earlier because they're preserving the consonantal text, but maybe there's some fuzzy stuff going on with yeah. the vowels. Every once yeah. in a while, there's interesting textual criticism stuff where this comes up. Yep. And if you look at Genesis chapter six, you could, without changing any of the consonants, you could only change the Masoretic vowels and you could get Hanoflim without changing the consonants. Right. Good. And yeah. so, you know what? Maybe it really is supposed to be the fallen ones. You know what? Even though Septuagint says giants, maybe it's really just fallen ones. Yeah. Well, there's one important detail. I said this word appears three times in the Hebrew Bible. One of those three times there's an extra yod in there. Mm. And that yod is like that Y, yeah. where it can be a Y sound or an E sound. And what it means is for one of those three instances, um, it could not be noflim. Right. Because of that vowel, that, that means that second vowel has to be that E sound. So nifilim, uh, not a hundred percent case closed, but given all the data we have and our understanding of comparative Semitics and our understanding of the Hebrew language itself, the Nifilim, we should be imagining giants. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well done. I mean, that's, that's excellent in, in uh, pouring through the linguistic side of that. Um, and you mentioned the, uh, the Aramaic with, uh, with, with it meaning giants, right? So yep. very interesting to see the, um, the various permutations that we have of this, of this word within the text. Um, and I mean, on the fallen ones to go back to Rashi, choosing the, going with the fallen ones as well. Some, uh, one, one of the earliest attestations that we have in the West Semitic world of this root actually does refer to fallen soldiers, right? So hmm. you have that as well. And from the perspective of the text, you would have the fallen ones from before these great men of renown, these giants, you, you sort of have a both and kind of thing happening potentially sure. within the text. Uh, and maybe the Jewish writers had a sense of that somehow. Yeah. Um, uh, the later Jewish writers had a sense of that when they were um, compiling the text. And so, okay. But what's really interesting is that this particular tradition goes back to a very ancient past within the ancient Near East, doesn't it? Yes. And I'm <clears throat> okay. so excited for you to unpack yeah, this. So let, people will be shocked. Yeah. So let's let's just unpack this. So... Uh, for sake of brevity, because of what we're doing, I'm just going to blow through sort of the historical <clears throat> understanding that we have. But essentially within Sumerian and but especially Mesopotamian, and that's what I'm going to focus on, Mesopotamian interpretation of prehistory. So when I talk about prehistory, what I mean is that time period in which from which we don't have any texts explaining what's going on. And within the ancient world, that means the time before the flood. So we even have an inscriptions, for example, in uh, uh, in uh, Assyrian texts, even Neo-Assyrian texts that would make the claim that a certain king, for example, studied inscriptions from before the flood. Right. So we have these sorts of ideas and sayings uh, going on within later Mesopotamian history. So all of that time before the flood was very significant for the ancient world just as it is here for the ancient Israelite text as well. But I call it prehistory 
because we have no idea really what was going on back then without a text, right? So we have archaeological data, so that's good. We have, um, we know that humans are there, that's good. But without someone to tell us a narrative, all we can do is construct a narrative, right? And it's very important for students to know this, that when we talk about history, we're talking about the writing down of, of, of how humans are reflecting on the past. In other words, what we write down in our reflection of the past is what we mean by history. And so when we say prehistory, we mean uh, that time period that we don't don't know about because we don't have the text to, 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 to really uh, tell us about it, right? All right, so what we have then in Mesopotamian interpretation of prehistory is this understanding that there were these divine beings called the Apkalu. Uh, so before the flood, they are fully divine beings who taught humanity all that was relevant to the building of civilization. Um, so your sciences, the, the, the magical side of uh, divination and all of that in the ancient Near East and Mesopotamia, um, uh, and to to all the daily things that we would do in civilization, uh, farming and the like, right? Um, so these were the sages of humanity, um, and we have seven of them before the flood, uh, with the seventh of the sages ascending to heaven, uh, and we're pretty sure that is maybe Adapa from the Adapa myth. In the Adapa myth, Adapa, the wise sage before the flood, he ascends to heaven to receive wisdom. Uh, he, uh, the gods want to know how he had received wi uh, great wisdom. Uh, and of course, he fails the test, uh, but in obedience to Ea and is sent back without eternal life, right? Uh, in one sense um, uh, to the earth. And so that sort of uh, begins this very interesting uh, development between uh, wise sages on the earth who have eternal life and who do not. Some of the Upkalu were thought to be evil as they were associated with demons. So it's not just that all the Upkalu were just these wise sages. There's a whole tradition within uh, the Upkalu. And sometimes there's great confusion between the Upkalu as divine beings on the earth and the Anunnaki, who are sort of the lesser divine beings within the uh, Mesopotamian pantheon. But we won't go into the Anunnaki here in just a minute. So what's interesting and important for the text that we're studying in the Mesopotamian rendition, okay, of this text, once the flood arrived, it was paramount for the offspring. So here's the interesting thing of these fully divine Apkalu to carry on the wisdom in the earth. So we actually have within the Mesopotamian text that after the flood, the Apkalu continue on, but they do, so, they do so through their offspring. So this is important to note. It means that Apkalu divine beings were mating with human women and bringing forth offspring in the Mesopotamian tradition, not just in the biblical tradition like what we have. It's crazy, right? Blow your mind, right? It's fun. Isn't prehistory great? It's so fun to study prehistory <laughs> or to study history. I'm sorry. Uh, and, and what they thought about prehistory, if you will. So um, anyways, we have, for example, one Akkadian text, Gilgamesh, who we think was um, some historians would say is a real ruler uh, within um, early ancient, within the early ancient Near East. We have one Akkadian text that says he's two-thirds divine and one-third human, right? So, and his description is that he was quite gigantic, if you will, right? So he was uh, a very tall man, <laughs> I believe nine feet, if, if, I, if I remember rightly. Uh, but in any case, um, gigantic, right? Because he is thought to be 
um, uh, of this offscreen. So though the original fully divine Apkalu were wiped out in the flood, according to the Mesopotamian tradition, their offspring were also known as Apkalu uh, in certain texts. So the problem here in the discussion, uh, when you get into some of the Assyriologists and even some of the biblical scholars who really, who really uh, unpack this, there can be confusion about the Apkalu because you have them pre-flood, fully divine after you have the offspring. Um, and even, even some of those, uh, wise sages after the flood become known as Umanu, sort of fully human. Yeah, you, you sort of get that tradition going as well as they even change the terminology. Um, but, um, what's, 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 what's really important is to know that the, the Apkalu of the offspring just after the flood were known as Apkalu, right? So that, that, that is the, the point that I'm making, but they are two thirds divine one-third human so they are the offspring um so what do we have then what we have then is something like this we have thus apkalu in mesopotamian tradition refers one to fully divine beings who ruled the earth before the flood these were the great wise sages and then after we have these quasi divine human beings who were the offspring of the apkalu and their and their procreating with human women for example gilgamesh okay so What's really, really important about this is that we have, even in later Mesopotamian tradition, kings want to want to claim that their genealogy goes back to these wise Apkalu, these sages, right? Why, why do they want that? Because they are bringing wisdom from the pre-flood era. They're bringing wisdom from the most ancient of time into the present. Um, and they do so because they are, in fact, claiming... Um, at times that uh, divine lineage going all the way back. So what are the sons of God doing then in Genesis 6, right? So it's interesting in Genesis 6, we don't have just the same term. We have Bnei Elohim referring to divine beings who we can say are sons of God. They're part of God's divine family, if you will. He's got divine sons, divine Bnei, they're Bnei Elohim. Um, and they take human women as wives, and their offspring are known as the Nephilim. So notice even right there in the ancient Israelite tradition, we have a critique of what would be the old and ancient Babylonian tradition of just the Apkalu, right? We have two different terms here. We're not going to equate the sons, uh, or I'm sorry, we're not going to equate the children of the, of, the, of the offspring between the divine rebellious sons of God, if we will. Uh, and the human women as the same terminology. They're not called Bnei Elohim. They're called Nephilim. And that terminology, I think, is very uh, important in what we have there. So I'm going to let you interject here before we continue on here, talking about like Enoch and all that, if there's anything you want to, to, want to bring in. Oh, so. man. I mean, you, you really just unpacked this. And look, if this doesn't get you excited about studying history, I don't know what will. This is beyond fascinating. And it's so. And this is also... Just it's so interesting in its own right, but this is so important for understanding Genesis chapter six, where we have verses that have attracted readers for so long because they're so fascinating. They're also in a very important plot point of the Genesis one through eleven narrative. Mm. But there's so little information though in that right. one section. Yeah, and I think it's very verses, helpful. Right? Yeah. yeah, just four <laughs> verses. So it's helpful to have this very expansive Mesopotamian mm. literature, these mm. texts that yeah. we can look to obviously yep. different authors mm -hmm. um there's different there obviously there are differences but they we see where they corroborate 
yeah. where there is, we have both are talking about, hey, there's a flood. Yeah. And before this flood, there are these divine beings, um, which both, by the way, are lesser divine beings. It's right. it's not Ea and it's not, you know, Yahweh, right? No. But it's these these lesser divine beings that are impregnating women and that their offspring are both before and after the flood. Most which famously, is what the text Gilgamesh, says, right? Yeah. Which is what the text says. Right. Um, so Gilgamesh being the famous one in Mesopotamian tradition, by the way, the Epic of Gilgamesh, if you haven't heard of that, I mean, it's one of the most famous stories yeah. ever. You can find it at Barnes Noble if you want. Yeah. Um, and then obviously the same thing in the Hebrew text. I alluded to how the word Nephilim appears three times, once in Genesis six, also appears in numbers. So that's multiple books later. Mm, uh, right. This is once we've left Egypt, uh, we're wandering in the wilderness. So we are well beyond the flood and the Nephilim yeah. are still yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think I might, this might be a good time to uh, reference, I might reference one other Hebrew aspect of Genesis 6. Yeah, let's do it. So m almost virtually every English translation translates the tense uh, of a line in Genesis 6-4 as this. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Now, before I get to this, this the, the nitty-gritty Hebrew thing, the, that phrase I just read already, in those days and also afterward, that should already be perking up our ears to know this isn't just like a one-time thing. Um, but the Hebrew or the English translations after this say, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man. So they do a simple past tense. Yeah, good. But that's an unexpected translation for me because what we have in Hebrew is actually a yiktol or a prefix conjugation. Not sure what, you know, you might hear the word imperfect depending on what how you've been taught Hebrew. But this verb in this type of context is almost, it's very, very rarely is it translated with a simple past tense idea. That's mm. not what we would expect here. Um, because Genesis 6, 1 through 4, we begin with, Vayahi in Genesis 6-1, and that's just a, a past tense narrative marker, basically, could mm -hmm. be an old preterite. Uh, but basically, we we're clearly have a narrative story being told, past tense, and what you'll see is um, we have different verbs that continue that narrative, primarily the Vayiktol form, as we'd expect. Verse 4, we have something different. We have a noun beginning a sentence, mm. followed by a katal verb. So this is probably background information. And sure enough, as we read that sentence, it makes sense that it's kind of giving us background information. And in the middle of that, we now have a yiktol verb by itself. So um, what would we expect? There are a couple possibilities of what this could be. One of them is this could be a very rare case um, that we see in 2 Kings 13, 14. So in 2 Kings, we have an example of a rare usage where we have that relative pronoun asher plus yamut, this yiktol. So this is very similar to our Genesis 6. Yeah, that's good. And that this um, could be referring to a future event from a past perspective. Mm -hmm. What's going on in Second Kings? Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die. All right. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's where we have this odd possible translation option for Yiktol, very nuanced uh, mm -hmm. translation. So it's basically Elisha, he has not died yet. 
even though the word die appears, he has the sickness that he will die from in the future. Yeah. So in other words, in this part of the story, we're referring still to a future event. So if that's what's going on in Genesis 6, that's one possible interpretation. In other words, we have something that's clearly going to happen in the future from the perspective of the narration. The other option is one that would be a less rare and less nuanced interpretation. This one would simply be viewing the Yiktol as a habitual um, translation. We have this uh, actually fairly often in the Hebrew Bible, often enough that it's not rare. In Job, we have Job 1.5 toward the end. It says, for Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually, um, and that it would be offering sacrifices, the context earlier. And in Hebrew, you have kacha yaase iov kol hayamim, that yaase word, mm -hmm. that is a yiktol. And normally, we're used to katal for past tense, or vayiktol for past tense. But here we have the katal, or the yiktol yaase. Uh, but this is used in a number of places in the Hebrew Bible to refer to something that's continual. Yeah. So... Why is this the case? Because in biblical Hebrew, it's more of an aspect than a tense language. And so it's not so much about a clear fixed time, but rather complete or incomplete action. And that complete or incomplete action could be in the past, present, or future. So yiktol is the imperfect, the imperfective. Mm. It's the not complete action. So it could be not complete action of the present or the future, but also of the past. So in other words, it's reviewing the, the past, not from completed action, but something that's just continually happening it's good. It's good. in yeah. a habitual sense. So if we take that interpretation of Genesis 6, verse 4, um, what that would mean is we're referring, it would, the sentence would more so read like, uh, it would be something more like, when the sons of God would go into the daughters of man and bear children for them. So referring to... This is a wide range of time. Like this is something that they just used to do. This is what they would do in a habitual sense. Regardless of which take you have, um, it's, I think, both in the context of the story itself and the nuanced Hebrew grammar, this is not a one-time event that's envisioned here in the text. And so this kind of leaves that door open again for this whole pre-post-flood right. Um, potentially, Did it again, you know, sort of thing, right? Maybe, yeah. but yeah. I should say, you know, with the Mesopotamian tradition, we have the Apkalo being used to refer both to fully divine and partially divine. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the Hebrew tradition doesn't spell it out, but that's what they have imagined too. So it's not clear. We don't necessarily know. Did right. fully divine B'nai yeah. Elohim, right. did they go into women before and after the flood? Yeah. Either way, we have it. We have a whole. I don't. Know, is this making sense? Well, it is making sense because uh, the thing is, when we get into this whole discussion, I mean, I've done it in my own work. Whereas, once the humans partake of the divine knowledge, essentially holding on to part of divinity, and the issue yeah. then is that if they take of the tree of life, they will have full divinity, eternal life, eternal wisdom, divine wisdom, divine life, that sort of thing. So this can become important when we get here to the end of the episode. But I think what you're saying is actually very instructive because it does ask the question. Uh, was the thing happening again afterwards with the divine, the B'nai Elohim, uh, with these uh, lesser divine beings? Um, we, you know, we, 
the terminology is hard. You're going to have a, you're going to have a lot of second temple Jewish scholars who are going to push back. So you can't say divine being if Christians who say you can't say divine being, but it's hard not to say divine being when it's B'nai Elohim, right? It's sons of Elohim. Uh, It's just very straightforward that way. So it's, it's, it's hard not to use that terminology, but if you'd like angels doesn't quite do it either because um, there's all sorts of, of, of problems of parsing when you use that word. Celestial beings, okay, we're getting a little a little uh, naturalistic there, aren't we, when we go to celestial or heavenly? You know, so anyways, I, I just think B'nai Elohim, divine beings, is a good way to think of it. Lesser than God. God's created it all. That's the ancient Israelite perspective. Um, again, even with the Apkalu, I want to be clear. There is great variation within this tradition within ancient Mesopotamia. It's not just one monolithic telling of the story. There is all sorts of different retellings and confusion and, and other uh, sort of conflicting narratives. But nevertheless, that ancient core is still there. Um, and, and I just want to make that clear for our listeners. But this brings us then, everything you just talked about, the thing happening again afterwards, within those four verses that we have on this in Genesis yeah. 6, you have a whole swath of later Jewish tradition right yep. before the time of Christ, right, right before the time of Jesus uh, and the common era, you have uh, these ancient Jews who began writing prolifically on this tradition, especially with what we have in First Enoch. Uh, but we have the Book of Giants as well, so we have other we have other texts as well that that tell us a lot. But First Enoch, we have something uh, very significant. So this is a text written in the time of Second Temple Judaism. Um, it claims to be. Uh, the story of Enoch, who is seventh in line from Adam, who ascends to heaven, right? He is taken and he is no more. So that's very similar already to uh, this, um, the the ascension motif that we have with the Apkalu, with the Dapa that we were talking about as well, right? So it's very similar uh, to the ancient uh, Mesopotamian tradition, uh, just within the genealogy. Uh, and so I just want to make that point why Enoch is so important here. It's because while he ascends, he's so wise in a sense, he ascends to heaven, God takes him, he is no more. But before that, uh, there's great revelation that's going on within that particular text. Now, why is it important? Because Second Temple Jews really relied upon these texts for understanding their worldview and understanding uh, how to interpret, if you will, the ancient past. Uh, And I think that's what's very significant. Now, if we can imagine they're coming we, we have ancient Israelite tradition ha, tradition having come through the exile, the Babylonian exile, uh, and landing uh, back in the land of Israel, in the land of Canaan, and, um, you know, thinking back upon these texts. So you're going to have what, what, what we would have is then the Babylonian tradition coming through, the newer Babylonian understanding of the ancient past, because we're talking fifth through the uh, the turn of the common era. So 500 years of tradition there that we're talking, uh, of reflecting back on the ancient past. So from that perspective, it was a long time ago. So for, for, for the time of Jesus, for second temple Jews, this was a long time ago when all this was going on. Right. And so it's important to have that because you're going to have what seems to be an ancient core coming down from the ancient past. Cause like we've said in other, uh, we've said in other episodes, um, these narratives of the flood, a lot of this was really solidified in ancient Mesopotamian history. I could quote Kenneth Kitchen on this between uh, the 1900s and the 1600s BCE. Everything after that was really just a retelling 
of what had been written down during that particular time. So that is much closer to the ancient past than where the Second Temple Jews are. So, but interesting in Enoch, what do we have? We have these watchers who are full, fully divine beings. In fact, uh, the late Dr. Michael Heiser, with his fantastic work uh, on all of this, uh, through some of these Assyriologists, he'll make connections between the watchers uh, and some of the uh, imagery of the Apkalu that we get in a later Mesopotamian period, actually. So uh, he'll actually make linguistic connections between them. I'm not going to go into all that right now. But nevertheless, uh, the watchers here in Enoch are the fully divine beings, or in Genesis 6, the B'nai Elohim. They are the rebellious divine sons of God's divine counsel. Because God has a divine counsel. We'll talk about that here towards the end. But these are those beings from that divine counsel who seem to be rebelling against the Lord himself. Uh, though lesser divine beings created by Yahweh, who assume they, they assume flesh and they take human women as wives, procreating with them and then bearing the children in the earth, who are the Nephilim of Genesis 6. Um, what's interesting uh, within this particular uh, particular narrative is that you sort of have a blending of what would be the Israelite critique of Mesopotamian tradition within the Enochian literature. Um, and out of that critique, which blends some of that tradition, I mean, it takes it and affirms it, also then critiquing it, you have within Second Temple Judaism this flowering, this just explosion, if you will, of understanding what really was going on in the ancient past. And you know, you have texts in the New Testament, you have in, in, in some of the, one of the letters of, of Peter, you have Jude, you have other really core references to what was going on here within those texts as well. So it just shows that the, the worldview uh, understanding here is affirmed by uh, sort of that Second Temple uh, Jewish understanding. And within the Enochian literature, um, Within the Enochian literature, the watchers are the ones who give all of this heavenly knowledge, if you will, to the humans. And that's a great sin that they that they commit in doing those sorts of things. And in some of the texts, it's like they're helping and others, they're being rebellious to the Lord and doing that. Uh, they're trying to help humans, if you will, but then being rebellious to the Lord at the same time. Uh, but this became a great sin within Second Temple Judaism. So it was understood that the mixing between the divine beings and the humans uh, on a sexual level, was grave sexual immorality. Uh, and these watchers, they actually seek forgiveness at one point from Enoch. And uh, so Enoch goes to the Lord, and the Lord replies and said, your sin is too great, I'm not going to forgive you. You're going to be locked up until the day of judgment. Which anyone who knows that the Lord is, uh, the Lord, the Lord, right? The God who's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and tender mercies. Of course, the rest of that verse is about judgment right after that. So in any case, you see here that God says to them, I'm not going to forgive you. Uh, you should have known because you were heavenly beings before you uh, assumed flesh and did this sort of thing. Um, so anyways, what's important to know is that we have then within Second Temple Judaism, this tradition of reading the Hebrew Bible and reading the ancient texts is significant. It's not just a side part of the story, like, oh, those four verses there, or mm -hmm. those occurrences of Nephilim that we have in the book of Numbers, which 
become significant for the conquest, right? They're going to remove the giant clans out of the land. That becomes very significant. It's as if it's a holy war against rebellious divine beings and their offspring and the uh, the offspring of, of the Lord himself, right? Of of the Lord's choosing, Yahweh's choosing of Israel and all of that. That becomes very significant for the rest of the story. So I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but. Well, I mean, honestly, I think you're just segueing to a, the, one of the other fascinating parts of this discussion. Yeah. And I think you should just go there, which mm. is like, you already talked about how this isn't just four verses, right? you know, and I think people feel now there's a whole Mesopotamian tradition that mm -hmm. that has somewhat similar stories. We have the Enochian, Enochian tradition, which I don't know how old that goes back to, but, it, you know, in Second Temple, Jewish literature, this is clearly important. Right. And I think people would be really surprised. I love how you explain this, um, but how these four verses aren't just random for a little fun entertainment right. in Genesis yeah. 1 through 11. Yeah. But this is actually tapping into a major plot point for the whole Hebrew Bible, and it ends up getting into this whole divine sonship. So do you just want to go ahead and just take us there? Let's just do it. Yeah. I mean, let's just go there. So, um, so as sort of a review and a preface to this, uh, and I think this is very significant. So, you know, again, in the Mesopotamian tradition, kings often spoke that they were in the lineage of the Apkalu. That was very important. You know, the seven sages from before the flood and of the offspring lineage existed, you know, uh, from the flood forward. It was a claim to uh, to being a sage yourself in your leadership. It was a claim of, of being part of that great lineage. However, the ancient Israelite tradition you know, in taking this historical core of what they're doing, they don't claim kings of Israel do not claim to be part of the descendants of the divine Abkalu. They certainly don't claim to be the descendants of the Nephilim. In fact, within the ancient Israelite text, you have the opposite. They go in and the spies go in, for example, in the land, come back and say, there's giants in the land, right? Well, they're claiming there are uh, offspring of the rebellious divine sons, uh, the Bnei Elohim in the land, the giants, and we are but grasshoppers in their sight, right? And of course, that itself is a sin and not trusting that Yahweh is going to uh, do away with them and judge them and, and give victory to Israel, right? So it becomes uh, a part of the narrative. So we don't have a claim to being part of those offspring. Rather, in Genesis, we see how cre uh, humans were created by Yahweh and are his children, right? That is key to the whole Genesis 1 to 3 narrative. In fact, uh, the image of God imagery, we've, we've had Dr. Uh, Catherine McDowell on here before, and she's made, uh, and her research is just exceptional in bringing this out, that one of the core meanings to be the image of God is to be the son of God, right? Is to be the child of God himself. So uh, that is at the very core of Genesis 1 to 3. So uh, we see then that humans are created by Yahweh and are his children, Adam as a divine son, right? Uh, and when the story picks back up in Exodus, this is key, when the story picks up in Exodus, we go from Genesis to Exodus, when we get to Exodus, we find in Exodus 4, 22 and 23, Israel is God's firstborn son is Yahweh's firstborn son. That's what the text says. If anyone ever asks you, who is God's son in the Hebrew Bible? Your answer needs to be Israel is God's son, his firstborn son, right? And it is a clear distinction between the offspring of the sons of God, the watchers and the offspring of Yahweh. It makes good sense as to why any rebellious uh, thing happening in the heavenly realm any sort of conflict happening in the heavenly realm between uh, 
Yahweh, the one who's created everything, and those who have been created, who are divine sons in a sense, rebelling against him, it would make sense why we would have this tradition of the watchers, right? It, it's actually, it's not just integral for what's going to come in the New Testament. We won't, we're, we're getting there and we, we see sort of some logical connections happening there quite clearly, but it's already there in Exodus. And I, and I want to make that clear. This is central yep. to... Yep. The rest of the narrative of the Hebrew Bible with Exodus 4, 22 and 23, it's why the Lord says, I'm going to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. Why? Because Pharaoh refuses to let his firstborn son Israel go. So it's very, very key uh, to the whole point. And so we find out that Israel is, in fact, Yahweh's firstborn son, which is a clear distinction, again, between the offspring of the sons of God and the watchers and the offspring of Yahweh. It's so good. In fact, this brings us full circle back to Deuteronomy 32. I think this would be a really uh, straightforward way to show everyone. Deuteronomy 32.8 is where our whole conversation started. In verse 6, um, where, we can, where we can read, Halohu avicha, is he not your father? Yeah, boom. Konechahu ascha, you know, who created you, who made you. Vayechonecha. Uh, and he established you. Mm. And then that's where we get to remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, he will show you. Your elders, they will teach you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the boards of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, mm. Jacob. Mm. Or Israel, you could say. Mm. Jacob, his allotted heritage mm. and so that's the picture once again it's that father-son language that yeah. god is using with israel that they are his that they are his son yeah so as let's... opposed to what's assumed is that the other nations yeah that that they've been given over to these other divine beings yeah that um, so what we have know, then, like, for example, in the Tower of Babel and the disinheriting of the nations that we have here in Deuteronomy 32, like what you're saying, is that those re those nations, especially what you have at the Tower of Babel, those other nations from the table of nations that we have right before that, those nations don't want, aren't doing what Yahweh is required, which is fill the earth, multiply, fill the earth after the flood. That's what the command is given. A new, what was to be done in the beginning, fill, multiply, fill the earth with descendants that are human, right? <laughs> Instead, we get the Tower of Babel, which is, uh, uh, you know, this ancient ziggurat, this ancient temple, stair-step temple structure, uh, which for Babylonian, from a Babylonian perspective, is the foundation of everything within heaven and earth. I mean, that that's that's really at the core of what that is meaning, is a great rebellion against the Lord himself. And so the Lord comes down, scatters the nations. And from the Deuteronomy 32 perspective, what we have being done here is God saying, because you want to war, because you're rebelling against me, your punishment, if you will, is going to be to worship these rebellious divine beings, right? I'm going to place them over the different nations. They're going to have rulership over you and you're going to have to obey them. Uh, you're not going to obey me. But so the Lord disinherits the nations at Babel. But then the next chapter, like I said, it was all leading to Genesis 11. The next chapter, chapter 12, God calls a man living in Mesopotamia out of Mesopotamia and says, go to a land that I will show you. Abraham becoming the first, the first man to repent and to leave idolatry. Of course, 
in Jewish tradition, you'll have some say his father as well, right? But nevertheless, Abraham, the very core of our faith, right? He becomes Yahweh's special chosen person through whom uh, his descendants will bless all the nations of the earth, which is a way of saying we'll bring the nations back to the worship of the one God. Now, we have something significant here, don't we, about the Genesis 10, 70 number, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, true. So, okay. So basically we were looking at, is it, did, did God uh, determine the borders of the nations and the number of, of the peoples according mm -hmm. to the number of the sons of God or according to the number of the sons of Israel? Right. And if you remember, Septuagint and Dead Sea Scrolls both refer to some sort of divine being. Mm -hmm. um, the Dead Sea Scrolls specifically, B'nai Elohim. Mm -hmm. And okay, Masoretic text. Let's circle back to this. Could there be something to this tradition where yeah. it says, according to the number of the sons of Israel? Mm. You might be asking yourself, well, what number is that? Well, good question. I mean, theoretically, you could take any time period in the Hebrew Bible and say, oh, there's <laughs> their number. But there are a couple of significant points where we have a number of Israel. In the same book of Genesis, where we have Genesis 6, toward the end of the book, when Jacob and his sons are going into Israel, text says that it's 70 people who went into mm -hmm. Israel. And not long after that, we have Exodus, an important number of 70 elders. And so it became a tradition, Jewish tradition to, to read that the number of the sons of Israel in that tradition reading of Deuteronomy 32, that it's assumed 70 is the number. And that just so happens to correlate to numbers that we're aware of in textual traditions in the ancient Near East about the number of deities. Yeah. So like in Ugarit, there are texts that talk about um, that you have Baal. Well, I guess it depends what time period, who was the supreme god in Ugarit. But and, and we have a text where Baal is described as the, the primary god. And then there's the 70 sons of Asherah. And so these 70... Um, divine sons, divine beings of his consort, Asherah. So uh, anyway, the, it opens up this interesting discussion of, look, what you could do is this. What you could do is say, you know what, we're just trying to figure out which textual tradition is, quote, right. And there's only just one way to look at it. But Dr. French, you had a really interesting thought that I wonder if you want to just expound on, yeah. which is, right. you know, what if we don't view this as, okay, it's two versus three, Septuagint, Etsy Scrolls versus Masoretic Text. Mm -hmm. You know, divine beings makes more sense. So let's just scrap sons of Israel. But think, you know what? Let, let's track the sons of Israel. Could there, does this idea have some legs to it as well? Yeah. Could this be interacting with the greater ideas we've been discussing today? Yeah. So why don't yeah. you? Yeah, say no, some it's very thought. good. And uh, it, it is true because the Ugaritic pantheon, I mean, that's very important too with the 70 sons of Ale. I, I actually hold this tradition that even though Baal ends up there, that's actually Ale that they're referring to and that sure. he's still yeah. subservient to Ale in one set. So the 70 sons of Ale coming down. But but that's fascinating. And then but then, OK, so the 70 sons of Israel. Now, within this particular discussion, within the scholarly literature, uh, there's a lot of it's one or it's the other. Um, and there's reasons for that, because you would think that the polemic later of the sons of Israel being that, well, there aren't any other beings in a monotheistic world, there's no other divine beings. So we don't want to use that terminology. And so that is 
is is trying to really push back on that. It could be one reason. It might not be the reason, but it could be the reason. Um, so sure. anyways, all that to say, there's just a lot of back and forth on that. But I wonder if there isn't within these textual textual traditions a reason for um, a certain Hebrew textual tradition putting Israel over and against B'nai Elohim, um, and that reason being that it's both and. And I love the both and uh, possibility, and I want to push that here, actually, because if you think about the whole story of Israel from Genesis 12 forward, it is that the seed of Abraham, the um, the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel is to be the bless is to be a blessing for all nations. Right. That's going to happen. The Lord says, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. But you will be a blessing for all nations. Um, and so it would make sense as it seems to be within ancient Israelites, the early ancient Israelite historical conquest narratives in which Israel takes the land of Canaan back from the rebellious divine sons and their offspring, that that's what's happening in the Holy War. Um, it would make sense then that the replacement of the 70 sons who were the, the, the 70 rebellious divine sons at the table of nations in the in the Ugaritic, for example, Northwest Semitic pantheon, pantheon perspective, um, it would make sense then that God is going to take the 70 of Israel, the elders, and replace those divine sons over the nations, right? Israel comes to the head of all nations. So for me, it seems that, and we don't like this from a modern perspective with our textual traditions. We want a textual tradition to be exactly the same. And if it's not, there's a problem. Like this is how we talk about the biblical right. facts. But for the ancients, even even the Apostle Paul, right? For him, he could take a whole swath of textual tradition from the ancient from his time period, from the ancient past, and he could hold it together as as sacred scripture, um, knowing that those conflicting traditions uh were there. And this this is important for us to see here, because I think Second Temple Jews, what if? What if the Masoretic tradition knows of the other textual traditions here and says, okay, we'll still affirm that in one sense, but we're going to put Israel in here as well, because that is important for our understanding of what's coming, that Israel is going to come to the head of all nations in one sense. Uh, and so within Deuteronomy 32, you would have this reflection on the past but sort of an eerie um, prophetic thing of what's coming or what should be for the future, you know, this type of thing. I don't know. It's to me, it's, 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 it's taking the ancient texts and saying, let's the ancient textual traditions and let's say, uh, or let's allow for there to be a variation within what we claim is part of the truth from the past, if you will. Yeah. I think it is such a fascinating idea to view mm -hmm. this both and, yeah. And, you know, as we've explained the plot of scripture and the, and the plot of everything related to these sons of God, it's, I think it's a really interesting theory yeah. Yeah. because so and, much lines up. And I think it connects then to, uh, let's just bring in the new Testament. Cause we, we have to do this, right? I mean, it's yeah. obvious then that you have the son of man of, of, of the later chapters of Daniel, the son of Adam, who's going to be elevated to the highest place of the divine court. Um, and, um, that this, this son of Adam, 
within a New Testament perspective is, in fact, the full-on divine son of Yahweh, right? So he's fully Yahweh, fully human. And you have then that tradition uh, coming full head, this, this ancient tradition we were just talking about, coming full head in Jesus, who is the Israel of God, the firstborn son of God in that sense. Uh, and, of course, what is he doing? Reconstituting this whole thing around himself, even with the 70 that are sent out. You have that idea. You have go into all nations, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, and, and you have even in Acts, you have this claim that God you know, allowed this in the past, like what we have in Deuteronomy 4, the worship of these false gods. It was a punishment for not worshiping him. He allowed it. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent and to believe on the only divine son, not any of yep. the other rebellious offspring of uh, of the rebellious divine sons, but the only divine son of God. Um, and so all of that just comes very, I mean, it just it just shows how it's very much founded upon um this ancient uh these ancient israelite texts the hebrew bible and then with the new testament you also which add one other idea yeah. is that that then the church and we are called children of god that's right and and uh yeah there's so many fascinating we things. are his offspring right i mean that's the point right <laughs> right and yeah. uh you hovered over it so you hovered over it so quickly. I want to mention again that interesting story where Jesus specifically sends out seventy disciples. Yeah, um, yeah. You know that's so interesting. I think it's very clear that we're talking about the reversal of Babel, the rever the 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 full fruition, the full purposed yeah. moment of of Genesis ten. We're, we're the, I can't remember if we said this or not that yeah. Genesis ten, the table of nations, lists seventy nations in that section. So yes, that's why there's I, that that's direct. right. Good correlation yeah. between there. I can remember if we said that or not. Yeah. No, I don't know if we did, but uh, we just did. So there it is. <laughs> yep. Man, this is, I feel like right now, you know, you're Aladdin and we're all going on a magic carpet ride with you. Um, <laughs> just don't say, no, yeah, I was going to say, don't, don't go there. <laughs> no, sorry. The, the analogy breaks down very quickly, um, <laughs> but but look, in all seriousness, this is this is um, probably one of the best, ex not one of the best examples necessarily. I mean, I think it is an amazing example of how deep study of Hebrew Bible in its ancient Near Eastern context is so critical for making sense of it. That's right. And yeah. this is something that I think is it's so important for understanding Genesis 6, uh, Genesis 1 through 11, all of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, Exodus, Deuteronomy, going all the way, all the way through the New Testament, and uh, and our ancient just... our ancient past is humans, right? Like yes, yeah. This is our this is our ancient history. This is what we've been told from the past, and do as you will with uh, how we talk about the pre known world, the prehistorical world. But there's just a lot we don't know, right? And this is how the ancients yep. understood it. So, yeah, and the idea that divine sonship is is a core right. core theme of right. the whole. Right. The whole history. Yeah. Amen. So, so good. Mm. Um, do you have any last thoughts? Put a bow on anything? Well, um, yeah. I mean, my last thought would be, obviously, the rebellious divine sons tried to stop the genealogy of, Ma of, of Luke and of Matthew, right, that takes, that takes Jesus back to Adam. 
the Son of God, right, that we get in the New Testament. And so that whole idea seems to be that with the creation of humans, uh, there is an already inherent understanding from the divine council, those, those divine sons, uh, that humans are his family on the earth. Uh, the the direct offspring of Yahweh himself. He is the one who has created them. He is father to Israel, as we read in that text. And I think it's very, very uh, important that you have that deep in your theology, um, even especially before you get to the New Testament. Wow. This has been an absolute blast. Such a mm -hmm. great journey this episode has been. Thank you to everyone for joining us today. And you can find us on audio podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. You can also find our episodes on YouTube as well as shorter clips from these conversations that we have with each other as well as with experts in the field. And if you prefer really short content, we make 60-second clips that we post on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and we even write uh, little threads on um, on Twitter and the new threads app. So thank you to all those uh, who are participating. If this has been helpful for you and adds value, uh, sharing this with friends, family, anyone who are interested is super helpful to us. You can also support us on Patreon. So thank you for joining us for this conversation, and we will see you in the next one.